Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. In today's episode, Steve Langan, director of EMEA Partnerships at research firm Para Analytics, discusses the company's latest report into audience viewing trends in the US and Europe since the COVID-19 crisis struck. And Patrick Walker, former head of EMEA Media Partnerships at Facebook and YouTube, talks about the launch of his new business, Uptime Today, on the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. But first, Michael Brader, partner at UK-based media law firm Wigan, discusses how the current production freeze is impacting mergers and acquisitions in the TV production sector, in particular for producers whose earnout periods include 2020. Here he is, talking to C21's Ed Waller. Michael, I'm very interested in, in the legal implications of the pandemic for the um, mergers and acquisition sector. How have, how have your indie producer clients been impacted? It's impacted people in a number of different ways. There are some obvious elements which are affecting everybody in the production side and you know, the, the highest activity that we have at the moment is uh, helping them deal with their priorities being around employees. And, and sort of furloughing, et cetera. And, and, you know, that's keeping the employment teams extremely busy. But on the M&A side, one area where I think we're going to see increasingly people turning to us for advice is if they find themselves within a period of an earnout, an option period, which includes 2020, in other words, which might affect the receipt of um, M&A proceeds from a, a deferred or, or further earn out down the line, I expect that a number of people will want to start thinking about how they could either renegotiate or otherwise change the terms of the arrangements that they have in place, because obviously everybody with no production work going on at the moment is going to be affected and, and negatively affected in terms of their M&A returns down the line. And, and, and that may also include startups where there are, for instance, option arrangements for investors to, to move to a majority position down the line, where again, the valuation will be based on it potentially in part on 2020. And with a, such a low output year, a fellow year, that is going to affect quite a few people. How do you think um, the buyers, the companies that have already bought um, production companies, would uh, respond to if you wanted to treat uh, this period as a sort of exceptional cost? I don't think that people are naturally going to sort of be pushing back against this. Everybody understands you know, that this is a sort of a, an unprecedented situation. And you know, my, my experience has put a lot of startup businesses into some of the, the key sort of um, investors in, in independent TV production. And um, the relationships are always good, symbiotic, and I don't think any investor will be gaining anything by pushing back in, in what are, you know, obviously very difficult times. I, I, I mean, these things aren't without complications, particularly around tax when you're trying after the event to change um, the terms of, of deals. But I, you know, I, I think I'm probably not the only person in the market who will be quite actively looking at opportunities to either extend option periods or at least find ways to sort of, you know, for addbacks or whatever, where, uh, you know, revenue is coming in later than was, you know, originally expected. You know, because we, the, the hope and expectation is obviously as soon as we're all allowed out again, that production activity, you know, subject to complications around studio and location space, et cetera, et cetera, um, will pick up very quickly. And so we're really talking about a deferral of revenue rather than anything else. Uh, in terms of uh, M&A deals that are about to be signed or were about to be signed, what what has your experience told you about those conversations? We're still very busy and we are closing the deal. So I, I think broadly the experience shows that where a deal is close enough 
to be closed without an enormous amount of activity, then that is what's happening. So I'm, you know, I've just recently closed two investment deals for new scripted startups, got a big M&A disposal currently ongoing. All of those you know, continue because the, the will and the ability to do so. Um, where I'm finding that things are being put more on ice is where activity had only recently started either um, in uh, sellers going to market uh, in, you know, to find buyers or um, where you know, talent, I, I, I sort of advise a lot of you know, writers, producers, commissioners on screen talent on setting up TV production businesses. Those at early stages are simply fallow at the moment. How's the pandemic and the production freeze actually impacted the value of, of indies? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's an I, you know, Inevitably, you know, valuations get driven down in, in sort of a down market, which we're, we're clearly in at the moment. You know, the traditional valuation methodology in relation to independent TV production is, is sort of multiples of trailing EBITDA, so two or three years of, of historic EBITDA. Now, you know, that, that sort of comes back to what I was saying earlier around 2020 being a fallow year and affecting people in future negotiations. Um, I think sort of at the moment there will be a strong case of people looking to raise finance or, or to sell businesses in, in in trying to find a way to sort of ignore as far as possible uh, 2020 because you know if you use that traditional valuation methodology nobody's expecting this to be a strong year for, for their earnings for instance so that will inevitably have an effect but i can see the market will you know have to find its way around that do you think the uh, impact on the valuation of indies, the, the deflationary impact on valuation, will actually stimulate the M&A market because these some of these production companies are going to be available for much less than they perhaps were a year ago? Yeah, I, th- I think there, I think there are two uh, I mean, the, the, the sort of two broad bits of what I do is either selling businesses or or setting them up with a view to them being further acquired down the line. And um, you know, I think with the former, the, the M&A market has certainly got a little quieter over the last say three or four years that's partly because a lot of companies have been sold in in the last 10 years um anyway but also investors are beginning to see that actually investment in startup and in talent is also you know a cheaper and better way of going about things but um i think there's going to be possibly two two ways forward i i suspect that you know at the top end of the market with high profile strong talent whether that's you know in front of or behind camera uh, writers, etc., that that will continue. And I am still seeing conversations occurring where, where you know, it's a good time to have conversations when there's no production going on. So that as and when things really pick up, people can continue. So I, you know, those sort of arrangements are, are, are continuing. But um, I think in terms of the lower end of the market, I just wonder whether there may we may just see a sort of a, a little bit of a shift and, and a rethink about how one structures some of these deals and whether some of the high overhead that people expect that they will have in terms of sort of checking up and moving forwards will be rethought and investment can come out in at a lower level, but with additional support. So there are a number of the investors out there who can properly support a business in its early development stages without necessarily having to put um, you know, a huge amount of money into them. And I, there may be a little bit of a shift at some parts, in some parts of the market towards that. But I think in terms of the stimulus that's required, you know, I, I, you know I'm 
maybe I'm just glass half full sort of person, but I, and at the people I've been talking to in the market over the last few weeks, there is definitely you know a real willingness and urge to just get cracking as soon as um, people are back into production and and you know conversations can be probably had again. And so I you know I think. I'm not sure that the stimulus will necessarily come from lower valuation. Um, that may be a part of it, but I think it's just the general need for people to get content you know, up on our, our screens and devices. And um, that, one would hope, is going to be sort of happening pretty quickly after we're all released from lockdown. How important is the uh, whether or not these production companies have rights retention? Because we we're hearing from distributors that you know ready-made programming is the demand for that is going up through the roof so presumably production companies that have managed to retain rights are in a much stronger position to those that have not is that correct yeah i mean obviously with terms trade such a you know most production businesses will retain except those who've gone almost entirely to the streamers where they don't retain rights um are in a position where they can exploit depending on what the program is they're in the position to exploit um the intellectual property that they they own, and and that mean may mean that they can sort of use secondary rights like SVOD platforms, etc., as well as sort of um, primary broadcast. So you know, I've, all, I've always thought that retaining rights is important. I mean, that that goes to valuation as well, because one of the effects I think of sort of the, the Netflixes of this world acquiring rights outright to programming is that. There will be some businesses that in four or five years' time, whereas before they would have sat there with a, an archive and, and a whole set of rights, may not have that much. So at the very least, a, a spread of owned programming and programming that you might um, sell on to uh, an export platform is, is important. So, you know, I, I would always say, you know, if you do own a IP, then you are in a a stronger position than if you didn't have them. So I, I think that that is sort of self-evident. Everyone's hoping that production can resume, but what what are the legal implications or the legal issues that need to be addressed before that can happen? Would you say? I mean, this is straying slightly out of my M and A sort of focus, but you know, the, the, obviously the, there's the human element to start off with because a lot of freelancers will not be around, or they, they would have been sort of taken off projects. So I think people will still will need to build back up the actual personnel element of, of productions. That people will be, I guess, questioning whether there's any sort of uh, insurance angles that they can sort of address in terms of you know incurring force majeure clauses, etc. You know, there may, one hopes not, there may be bits of litigation around people not uh, performing under contracts. Which is why I think people are currently seeking to renegotiate where that where that may be the case. And so, sort of generally, I, I mean, there are also physical issues. I'm guessing where people will have booked studio space um, or locations which they have not obviously been able to use in the lockdown. But then they will need to find the, the time and um, availability of that studio space or location when we are all coming out. And of course, there are people who had potentially booked all of that for, for later in the year. So I, I suspect there may be some squeeze and pressure on the facilities and that, that may extend to post, post-production as well. So quite a few things that people will need to think about. And um, I, I expect that as soon as we see some sort of indication that things are going to be relaxed, then people will be needing to look at the terms of all of their contracts based around production to ensure that they can sort of pick up as quickly as they can. 
Do you think in future the VCs and, and the um, financial bodies that have driven the M&A market in the production sector will look twice or think twice now that obviously there's going to be some lockdowns in the future and those might impact productions going forward? Yeah, I mean, I, sorry, I, there, there isn't as much VC and institutional money in the market as there would be in lots of other sectors. So, you know, in, in my experience of buying and selling and setting up a lot of TV productions uh, businesses over the last 10 years, there's only been a, a handful of pure financial investors. The, the majority of the investors, buyers in the market have been traded. And you know, a, a large number of those will, will do so on the basis of getting the distribution rights to programming. So that there are sort of physical reasons why they would want to do those deals. There are some of the bigger VCs out there who have gone through their cycles, invested and, you know, some sold TV production. But other than an odd example here and there, there aren't that many kind of who will be day in, day out looking at the market for, for investment purposes. So I'm, I don't see that as something that will have a, a, a bigger effect on, on the market itself because I think the, the traditional aggregators are still going to be in there um, and we're seeing not, not just the uh, the usual suspects over here, but you know, coming out of the States, there are quite a few investors in the trade, not always just looking for the distribution piece as well as the, you know, the equity. And you know, if I was running a VC I, you know, or a financial institution, yes, obviously, you will think twice when you're seeing what the effect the lockdown has had on sort of production and the ability to sort of do the job of work. But on the flip side, I still think that there are going to be plenty of potential investors out there who will you know, be picking up and, you know, this is experience in talking to them, they're picking up as soon as they can moving forward. Pirate Analytics produced a new report into the most popular genres since COVID-19 lockdown in the US and Europe last week. The report saw an increased interest for apocalyptic dramas, a big move towards comfort viewing and a resurgence in fantasy adventure like Game of Thrones and Stranger Things, among others. It also found a decline in appetite for sitcoms and a big shift for demand during daytime hours. Daytime may just be the new primetime. Ed Waller caught up with Steve Langdon, Director of Partnerships at Parrot Analytics, to find out more. Parrot has just published a report about the most in-demand TV series genres uh, since the COVID-19 lockdown in the US and Europe. Maybe you could just talk us through the, the findings of that, if you could, Steve. Yeah, look, so obviously what we do is we measure the overall demand for television um, across the world, and we do that by looking at social media mentions, uh, how many people are researching a TV show, how many people are watching a TV show on um, social video, and how many people are pirating a television show as well. And we put all that empirical data um, into one to kind of um, help companies figure out how people are um, engaging with television in this new world. And we thought we've seen dramatic differences in how people are engaging with um, different genres in the weeks before and the weeks after the lockdown. So that was what the report was about. Um, interestingly, in the, in the two weeks before the lockdowns commenced in Europe, there was actually a drop in total demand for television shows. And remember, we don't measure news we measure television shows as a whole so you were still seeing people log in in the evening and and watch their favorite show and we were still getting the spikes but overall we saw a drop in total demand and the reason for that is because we measure what we call the attention economy and the thesis behind that is you can only have attention on 
one thing and not be have attention on another thing. And people's attention worldwide, and particularly in Europe at that time, was focused on the news cycle and also understanding more about the coronavirus. So we saw almost a direct correlation with people understanding more about the coronavirus and watching news and this temporary drop in demand for total television uh, television shows. Now, it did bounce back up as soon as the lockdowns came into effect. In fact, we're seeing huge growth in television show viewing now as people get used to the new norm. What um, genres were particularly popular and what were the differences between the US and Europe that your report revealed? So the report revealed some really interesting things. Now, first of all, we saw a lot of interest in um, apocalyptic dramas, action and adventure and disaster, which you know doesn't sound like they're bedfellows for, a, for an easy night in at the moment. But we kind of threw it around internally and we thought it was kind of almost cathartic viewing, like people were kind of like expressing their emotions by watching, you know, things were bad, but they're not quite as bad as The Walking Dead. They're not quite as bad as um, Kingdom and, and shows like that. So initially we saw an increase in, in pretty um, heavy, heavy viewing. Then as we tracked through the lockdown, you can see the moment where particularly in the UK, the schools are shut and there's a big genre shift to preschool action animation and of course you've got kids that were looking for entertainment but also parents that were looking for home learning and then in the midst of all that you've got a big move to what the television industry calls comfort viewing so viewing of shows that are kind of escaping from the news cycle so particularly in America we saw a lot of people tuning into fantasy adventure um, things like um, Game of Thrones and Stranger Things came back to the fore they're familiar they're tried and tested, they, they comfort um, viewers. And in the UK, and sorry, in Italy, where the virus probably was m mature quicker, we saw a quick move to escapist television content like travel documentaries, um, cooking came up a lot, and also nature documentaries as well. So it was real people starting to escape the uh, news cycle. Who's set to benefit from these uh, this, this, this growing demand for specific genres? Is it going to be the streamers, the broadcasters? Yeah, look, that's a really interesting question. I mean, we deal in we deal in le leading indicators. We try and help the industry understand where things are going. I don't think any of us know exactly where the next six months are going. What we are seeing is a particular lift in any sports programming at the moment. So given that people uh, like myself are starved of live sport at the moment, there's actually a big jump in people searching out sports documentaries and anything to do with kind of archive sports. So it's a very good time to raise up to the fore any, um, any sports shows that are sitting in the can and waiting to, um, to be released. We saw big, big lifts in um, Sunderland Till I Die, the UK documentary, um, the Formula One documentary, and a few others. So anything from the sports documentary genre, and particularly you've got people like the ITV and BBC that are bringing back the Olympics and bringing back Euro 1996 because they can't do Euro 2020. You know, that's perfect because sport not only galvanises a nation, but it will help, um, hopefully help the nation heal in the uh, summer of 2020. Are there any particular genres that are declining in popularity uh, as these other genres that you mentioned uh, increase? So there was a really interesting finding about um, sitcoms. 
So sitcoms you'd expect in a period of crisis to um, to rise, but we actually saw a decline in that couple of weeks that I spoke before the lockdowns. And when we dug into that, we, f- we found that the sitcoms that um, people turn to as the always-on sitcoms, like Modern Family, The Big Bang, Theory and Friends, the always-on was kind of being replaced by the news cycle. So they're the big, obviously they're big drivers of demand. And um, because they were, they were kind of being substituted for news, that, that dropped. We've also seen, of course, drops in shows that have been affected by production being halted. So we've seen things like late night talk shows in the US and live kind of reality shows that get filmed week by week, decreasing in demand, as you can imagine. Were there any other trends that emerged from the report that you can share with us? I think what we're seeing, what we're seeing is a big shift to um, demand during the daytime hours. I think whereas in, you know, maybe traditional prime time is kind of between 7 and 10 p.m., prime time is now moving into the day. So a lot of programmers are placing fare that wouldn't normally be seen before 7 p.m. in daylight and, and daytime hours, and we're seeing a lot of increases in um, in that kind of programming. So the time that people would have previously spent commuting back from work or uh, taking an early early night because they have to commute in the morning, they're giving over to watching more TV, it seems. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you can read a few things into that. The first thing you can read is that families are now together during the day a lot more. So it's maybe a little bit easier to look for a family um, a family favourite or something that everyone knows during the afternoon. So we saw increases in Western drama and shows that invoke nostalgia as well, like the better days, they kind of, they they rise up. But yeah, I think the families being at home is definitely a driver of that um, that daytime peak. Is your data also revealing increasing demand for classic shows, not just the new ones, as, as the people delve further into um, archives on, on servers and so forth? Yeah, look, I think archives are definitely where people need to um, delve at the moment. I think it's in, important to look at maybe shows that have been uh, acquired but maybe overlooked that can now come back into, um, into schedule. Patrick Walker is well known in the content business with stints at YouTube and Facebook. A co-founder of Uptime, the next generation learning app that feeds curious minds with curated videos from the world's leading experts, launches today. He spoke to Jonathan Webdell about his new mission and how the platform hopes to provide five a day for the brain. Just a little little background. I mean, as you know, I've been working in sort of on the crossroads of content and technology for, for a long time, starting out in public service television, educational programming in Japan with NHK and then with the BBC as a foreign news journalist in Asia. And um, and since then, I've been working on some very amazing, I've been very fortunate to work, you know, the you know, first international subscription services for real networks when that was a thing. And, um, you know, the, the acquisition and launch of, of YouTube and expanding that internationally over seven years, you know, startups that were, you know, building up uh, relationships with brands for talent and social influencers and organic growth on these platforms and then Facebook and Instagram with Facebook watch IGTV and all that. And I, and it was an amazing ride. I've been so fortunate. I've worked with the most amazing people and talent and broadcasters and media companies. But I just felt about a year ago that a little longer than a year ago that I, for me personally, maybe it was time to go back to my roots in, um, something that was more purposeful, uh, and that no matter what I did every day, 
um, the impact hopefully would be net positive for society. The social platforms are great. There's a lot of amazing stuff happening there. Um, but they're also becoming, you know, in some ways, you know, more addictive. I think people are trying hard to limit their use in some ways, but they're compelling. And there's so many compelling, inter you know, this is not just social platforms, but, you know, Netflix, all these things are full of great content. But there's also many ways like sugar rush content. It's not necessarily healthy for you to indulge too much, right? And do people have the wherewithal or can they know enough about some of the addictive nature of the technology that's out there to 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 limit their use um, for their own well-being and for their own family's well-being. And so I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe there's something there that could be built that is intent on helping people learn and grow and contribute positively towards a better world. And I think we we need to think carefully about the world we want to live in and what we can do as individuals and collectively to impact that. Um, so the idea of uptime uh, came to me. Uh, and uh, at the, right around then, strangely enough, I met two guys, two entrepreneurs who had just had a big exit on their corporate wellness app, LifeWorks, Jamie True and Jack Bacor. And they had a very similar thought. And so we decided to pool our resources, come together. Um, and Uptime was born as uh, a concept and now as a product. Um, we've got a, an amazing team of Probably about 30, 40 people, um, you know, we're, we're lucky to be well funded, um, even in these difficult times um, and, you know, backed by some some great folks, um, you know, such as Tim Davey, who's, you know, CEO of BBC Studios, who's one of our board members and also just a lot of um, allies who really want to support humane technology, who want to tell great stories from trustworthy sources um, so that's what we're doing, and we're launching on Earth Day, which is really exciting. It's still a very early product. We have a lot of work to do, but um, the team that has put it together have been really committed. You know, they come from backgrounds like, um, you know, TED, Benevolent AI, Tinder, um, Bumble, um, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Google, um, the BBC, Channel 4 News, Sky. You know, some people who uh, have some amazing experience that all are aligned on our mission. Just explain a little bit about the, the distribution and the content, uh, what our users going to see. Sure. So um, in a nutshell, Uptime is is a place where knowledge can be shared. Um, the content is there to help people build a stronger self, better relationships, uh, professional success and a better world, right? In a, in a broad sense, it's a um, it's a community that's all about learning with purpose. And for us, you know, we really feel that you know we need a movement, a movement that that cares a lot about um, uh, trustworthiness and bringing a, a focus back into you know believing in the experts and highlighting and bringing to the fore some amazing experts that that are, are busy doing great work, but, you know, are looking forward to sharing their knowledge and making it accessible to people of all of all kinds all over the world. Um, and there's a couple other reasons that, that it's important. One is, you know, there's we have an amazing ability right now to through our mobile devices, get access to the world's information instantaneously. Um, but it's also becoming a bit harder to make sense of it. And, you know, how, how and who do you trust? Um, and so whilst a lot of this content may be out there, these experts are sharing their things on different platforms, um, we're really focused on, you know, vetting the sources, vetting the experts and making sure that everything on the platform is providing a fresh perspective um, from a leading expert or organization 
that does have some track record and uh, or uh, and um, a really high intention of of, of sharing uh, meaningful and helpful information to positively support people's learning journeys. It is video uh, based platform, mobile first. Um, the things we're, we're, we're producing originally or that experts are sending us are, you know, vertical, you know, made for mobile, but we're also integrating lots of other um, existing content out there. Um, you know, there's some amazing knowledge content um, that uh, that we are integrating. Um, we're making video playlists every day with our team, you know, here and in the U.S., um, focused on really interesting topics that every day, you know, you can just kind of look at uptime as your five a day for your brain. It's a you know, sort of a safe, curated mobile video app focused on learning and focusing on sparking positive change. At the moment, we're not commissioning programs, although that is something in the future we may be looking to do. Um, we're partnering with organizations. We're, we're, we're curating uh, video assets, um, you know, from across the web as well. Um, we are working directly with you know, we now have over 80, 90 experts and they're, you know, we're adding more every day who are either working with us to record um, video playlists. Um, we used to send camera crews <laughs> or have them come to our studio. Now we do it over Zoom or any other you know, kind of video recording means online. Um, and uh, we also having many of them just self-shooting and we have created self-shooting guidelines. Uh, for them to do at home or in their garden or, you know, on their balcony or <laughs> in their living room. And so we're getting a really wonderful array of different types of self-shot videos from, you know, uh, experts like um, Dr. Tara Swart, who's a you know, neuroscientist and written a book called The Source. And she's sending in tips for keeping a healthy brain, um, you know, during COVID. Uh, some of them are very timely for the, the, the moment that we're in. Some of them are uh, evergreen, all of them will have longevity and be things people can benefit from, we think. Um, it's important that we work with organizations and experts who are really leaders in their field. Um, they're recognized by both renowned institutions or more general audience for the depth of specialization and experience. Um, and, but it's also broad you know, across the, the categories of health and wellness, um, building professional success, you know, building empathy and relationships, and you know, being an informed citizen and building a better world. You know, These are all kind of high intent categories meant to inform and inspire. Um, and so, um, you know, we also want to look for up and coming voices that maybe are so busy working in a hospital or working in a lab, but they have real expertise they can share to give them a platform to do that. Um, what we're building uh, over time is a subscription based service. It'll be free for some time as it's new, it's still very early. As I mentioned, it's the beginning of a movement we feel for um, learning with purpose. And so we're also opening up for people to participate by giving us feedback and telling us what else they'd like to see or saying if this worked for them or if this didn't work for them. Um, it really is about collectively building the right product for this time and, and going forward. When we feel that all those um, uh, things are, are fitting into place and working smoothly, then we are looking to introduce a subscription tier. Patrick Walker speaking with me about the launch of Uptime today. That's all for this episode. Remember, if you'd like to share your story of coping with COVID-19 with the international TV industry, email us using the address press at c21media.net. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>